When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hi, uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. He's one of our favorites. He's one of our go-tos. I ask him all kinds of stuff off camera because he's just that smart and knows a lot more than I do. He is the congressional reporter for The Independent. He also contributes to MSNBC. He's got a great book out called We Are Not Broken on autism. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Our congressional friend, Eric Garcia, is back on Herd. Tell my friend, always good talking to you. Thanks for coming back. Good to be back. All right. So we have a recess right now. But like we were talking about a minute ago, was that just one of the more nuttier uh, congressional sessions that we've all seen in a while? Because it sure seemed like unmitigated chaos. That was one of the busiest. And I think it was just I think one of the things that it was kind of disorienting is is just just take this into account is that for, you know, six of eight of Barack Obama's president president's presidential years. There was a divided Congress, so there was usually just cry, veering from crisis to crisis. Are we going to fund the government? Are we not going to fund the government? Raise the debt ceiling? Are we not going to raise the debt ceiling? Just, just, just that. And then, of course, there were the four years of Trump, where it was just like Trump sucked all the oxygen out of everything. <clears throat> then what we're and then last year because of a lot of different reasons, be, um, you know, uh, there was just. Democrats being singular focused on passing infrastructure and BBB, they uh, build back better. Not a lot of other stuff, you know, build and service. But then, weirdly enough, there was just this marathon of stuff that happened. There was the gun bill. There was the, the bipartisan gun bill, which we talked about last time I was on. I was here. Uh, then there was the semiconductors legislation. Then. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, as soon as that passed, I think literally the day that it, like an hour after it passed the Senate, uh, <laughs> Manchin and Schumer come up with their agreement on the Inflation Reduction Act. And then, of course, there's the Votorama and there's the House vote. So it was just this marathon of uh, legislation back and forth. And weirdly enough, I think it almost threw both Democrats and Republicans for a loop because McConnell was a little unnerved after Manchin and Schumer came up with their deal. And Democrats were like, wait, we're actually doing stuff. So that, so, so yeah, it was, it was one of the, it was one of the most chaotic um, and just busier sessions. One of the parts of this that got lost in the narrative and part of it was because it just happened so fast. And part of it was because, it was, you know, a technical bill that although it was billions of dollars, a lot of people just didn't have a lot of interest. That SHIP Act and then going right into Build Back Mansion, which turned into the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. That's the part of this story that a lot of people missed because that's what really kicked off in motion the insanity of Voterama and all that. But there was a lot of behind the scenes dealing. Yes. Schumer, this is one of the really rare times that the Democrats got one over on cocaine Mitch. And I'll say that affectionately, kind of, um, yeah. just because it's one of my favorite yeah, handles for somebody don't, don't ever. Like, don't and by the way, I love it. Every time you tweet cocaine Mitch, now you get a uh, substance abuse notice from Twitter. Yeah, which you did. Hilarious. But anyway, this is the part of this story that everybody missed of like, wait, everybody got whiplash. But that's the part they missed, wasn't it? That. The CHIP Act happened. There was a handshake agreement on getting that passed. And then Build Back Mansion dropped. Like you said, as soon as that happened, Mansion and Schumer yeah. hit them. Talk people through that, what it was like in the Senate, the reaction to that, because that's the piece everybody's missing here, isn't it? 
Yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll just say it from my perspective. So there was that vote on the chefs at semiconductors bill. And as you said, a lot of people, it was one of those things that it's one of those things that's incredibly important, but it's also so hard to find. So figure out. So a lot of just a lot of people just didn't pay attention to it. But <clears throat> it's incredibly important. It's a lot of money for the for building some semiconductors here instead of China. Uh, basically, what happened is during the final stretch of that. McConnell said, if Democrats go for, because it looked like Schumer and Manchin were going back to the negotiating table. McConnell laid it out. He said, we will scuttle the chips bill if there's a reconciliation deal. So basically that just kind of put it on the back burner. And it looks like basically Manchin and Schumer kind of just lied to McConnell. (laughs) And... So that happened. And literally, what was interesting is I was on the House side when that deal happened, you know, after the chips bill had happened. I was on the House side. We were judges trying to catch members. And then we got noted, our, all of our phones started to blow up that uh, Manchin and Schumer had reached a deal on the Inflation Reduction Act. And then that was just one of those things where it was almost kind of like, what's going on? And like, I remember I was talking with House members down like during votes, and they were almost kind of like, is this for real? And I remember uh, Jackie Spire, who's retiring, she literally just said miracles happen. <laughs> and it, it, everybody was almost kind of like, wait, they actually did it? And it was really just this kind of, everybody was thrown off because the House didn't know anything about it. Nobody else in the Senate knew about it um, because that was the point of it, is just keep it between McConnell and Schumer. Schumer. And then, of course, the White House didn't know about it. So it, it really just kind of threw everybody for a loop. And, uh, you, you know, some were happy about it, some weren't so happy about it. What is Manchin's standing right now? Because he took all the flack for the last two years. He's been the tallies man. He's been the avatar for everybody. I won't go into it, but he, he's got a long-running beef with the, the progressive wing, the Bernie wing folks specifically. Yeah. Him and Bernie are buddies, but Bernie's supporters in that network, that's yes. a blood feud that's never going to get settled. A lot of people don't no. know the backstory to that. What's his actual standing now today? And I know a lot of this will depend on whether the Senate flips or stays divided or whatever. Obviously, Schumer and him, I mean, I can't think of them being any tighter than they are now because he delivered for him when it really mattered. But the rest of the caucus, not the noise, not the news cycle, not the narrative, not what people say on Twitter, in the room, is he as powerful as it looks right now? You know, it was funny looking down at the, um, during the Votorama, it's it's really funny. So, like, for those who don't know, you can't bring your phone onto the Senate floor. Um, You can bring it, you can bring it to the house, you can bring your laptops if you need to write up. So literally you just go down with a pen and a notepad of paper uh, if you're in the press gallery. And it was funny looking at, he was just kind of, everybody was kind of talking him up, you know, a lot of Democrats. Like I saw him talking with Elizabeth Warren, I saw him talking with, you know, Chuck a lot. I saw him, you know, I saw him talking with Ossoff and he was kind of Mr. Popular. Incidentally, one of the interesting things that I noticed was, Toward the end, when uh, John Thune pulled that stunt where he wanted to include that amendment to exempt private equity subsidies from um, from the minimum tax for corporations valued over a billion dollars, um, he was kind of huddling with a lot of Democrats about how, how, what to do. And he actually got mad at Cinema because Cinema was going to vote on that thing. <clears throat> and she did vote on that thing. And Manchin stayed popular, whereas toward the end of it, people really weren't talking to cinema. And cinema was really just kind of just thumbing through her phone. And it was so Manchin, I think a lot of Democrats, from what I understand and from what my buddies over at Punchbowl reported, Schumer basically went to Warren, Schatz, Merkley, and Tina Smith and said, this is the best I can do. And they said, basically, look, and they're all the climate people. They said, look, take whatever deal you can get. We'll stomach it. We won't add any amendments. I think that that was really the, uh, I think that, so once he got to yes, and once he said, I'm not going to vote for any amendments either, he was good. 
Cinema, on the other hand, I think is kind of in the doghouse now. I don't know if you saw over the weekend, there was this thing where Manchin kind of stirred some people up where he said, we could have done some more on prescription drugs, but Cinema essentially said no. Um, and then Cinema rebutted him on Twitter. So, but but he's, he's kind of, everybody's kind of like, hey, Manchin's cool now. It's amazing how success – the sports analogy is winning solves everything. Passing yes. legislation solves everything in the Senate. Let's talk about Voterama for just a second. There's a lot of there. There was a lot of nonsense that went around it too, and I had fun with it too. We we're talking about you know Leahy's Batman sticker and all that fun stuff. The real story of it though was Bernie Sanders. Uh, let's just call it a protest. That's what it was. Yes, he did amendment after amendment after amendment. Uh, Sherrod Brown from Ohio got caught on the hot mic going, "Come on, Bernie," which was yeah. kind of kind of funny and actually somewhat broke the tension. I think Bernie after that he only did like one more and stopped. Yeah. But that was really the story of Voterama was Bernie doing his Bernie thing where he did his little protest but in the end voted for it. Yeah. Yeah, there is so what happened is right before the Voterama Bernie went on the Senate floor and I think he was frustrating. You have to understand that or you understand this but a lot of our listeners don't understand this. Sanders when he became budget committee chairman, this was what he wanted to do. He, he was hoping to pass a $6 trillion spending bill. That was never going to happen. Warner got him down to $3.5 trillion. Then, of course, Manchin got it down to $1.75 and then said no on BBB. He was really upset that a lot of stuff wasn't included. And then he went on the Senate floor and he gave basically a protest speech saying, this isn't really going to do much to solve inflation. And what happened was I tweeted that out. And... McConnell World and a lot of Republican flax just started retweeting it, and the RNC started doing it, and it really got some people kind of mad. And then the 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 and so Sanders basically because basically what happened is Democrats when this happened, they did and I mentioned this earlier, they did kind of a blood oath saying, okay, Schumer Mansion got this deal, we're not going to add anything to it because we don't want to peeve off Mansion uh, Mansion and Cinema. Sanders was really upset about that. So he tried to add amendment after amendment. And the, the interesting thing about it is that he and I believe Senator Raphael Warnock were the only two who Democrats who included who vote who proposed any amendments. And Warnock's was more just to he knew that it wasn't gonna happen. He just needed to do it to save himself a re-election. It was on Medicaid expansion. Sanders, his thing, the, the thing that led to Sherrod Brown saying, come on, Bernie, was he wanted to add the child tax credit, which Manchin famously doesn't like. And Sherrod Brown, who actually is the biggest champion for the child tax credit, the Senate, along with Senator Michael Bennett, he was just like, look, we can't do this now. So, you know, because it'll, it'll make Manchin upset. So he's like, come on, Bernie. And that's basically what caused it. But it, that, that kind of broke the tension a little bit. And afterwards, Sanders kind of cooled off. <clears throat> and he was, I was going to, I should say, he was always going to vote for the legislation it was never going to be. It was never going to be an issue. The real person who it was always going to be an issue for that everybody was watching was Cinema. And Cinema is the one. You know, she's she's not up for election this time. She will be next no. time. Um, we we're going to watch that state closely. Of course, Mark Kelly and uh, Blake Masters is going to be the headline there. Yeah, very close watch. It's a purple state. It's the purple. Yes. It's the purple states right now. She she's probably number one on the list of people on the progressive left that they want a primary right now, right? Because I know yes. they talk about Mansion nonstop, but let's be honest, no, no nobody nobody to the left of Mansion's gotten within forty points of winning the last two cycles out there. Cinema, they think they can get. Are they really going to go after her as hard as they say they are on Twitter and as mad as they are now? Is that going to carry over for two more years? I think the I think that there really is some. This is this is the thing. <clears throat> Here's what still gets stood out to me is after the um, after the Voterama and everything was done, Schumer gave a press conference. Um, I went home because I was too sleepy, but <laughs> um, 
this I, was I, I, 16 I, hours for people that aren't paying attention. This yeah. was 16 hours on the floor. That means two, three hours ahead of that and another hour and a half, two hours after that. Yeah, you're talking was, a full day. You're talking a full 24 hours. I think I took like a 30-minute nap at one point. But, uh, but, but so there was a press conference afterward where Schumer kind of admitted, he's like, there were some bumps in the road with cinema and the man and the Thune Amendment afterward. <clears throat> and for those who don't know, Senator John Thune is the Republican whip. Wants to eventually succeed McConnell. We'll see if he actually can. Um, and it stood out to me that Schumer would single out cinema that way because, you know, as you said, winning is a way of solving everything. But there were some people who were really upset. And I think it was because. <clears throat> It wasn't like Sanders was just throwing a tantrum that he didn't get what he wanted. It was like cinema was actively siding with Republicans to do a carve out for private equity. Who uh, it was interesting because that week before they took out the closing of the carried interest loophole. And for those who don't follow economics that much or don't follow Wall Street, you know this. So I'm just explaining to the plebs. Carried interest basically allows for hedge fund managers and venture capitalists and basically the and private equity people to basically have their cat their income taxed as capital gains not income cinema stripped that out because she likes private equity so i think it's just the fact that she was willing to stick up for private equity that really upsets a lot of people that's what i think annoys a lot of people that she was looking out for some of the highest or lloyd blankfein literally said hats off to the private equity lobby for being able to keep your taxes low and of course lloyd blankfein's a hypocrite as a former ceo of goldman sachs but 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 yeah so there is some real anger and frustration and this is of course on top of her already not wanting to change the filibuster on top of her uh you, you know with her little thumbs down on the minimum wage thing I don't, it looks like that might be able to carry over. We'll see. The question is whether there is enough of momentum within Arizona Democratic groups, which are really kind of, which have really kind of sprung up in the past 12 years since the immigration bill. But, you know, I think a lot of it remains to be seen whether it actually happens. Uh, I'll say Gallego is, you know, he has a strong base of support and he has a lot of people who like him in the state. Yeah, he ain't being subtle about it anyway. The reason I bring it up is because Arizona is the opposite of West Virginia. West Virginia yes. is a red state. Joe Manchin is probably going to be the the last national Democrat for at least a couple of cycles. Um, yes. Arizona is different. We see what's happening right there in the general election there. We know who's running for governor. We know who the Senate candidate this time. If you take out a moderate Dem, look, I'm, I don't have a dog in that fight other than just observing from afar, but I I follow this stuff. You run If you get a progressive that, primaries heard from the left in Arizona and you run them in the general election out there, the kind of candidates the Arizona GOP are putting up, you might get a real right wing crazy person winning a Senate seat that you could otherwise win if you're not real careful. Shouldn't they kind of step back and think about this a little bit before they just put out a code red on cinema? So this is what I've said is that everybody, cinema and progressives, this is why they're watching the Mark Kelly race is that so, because Kelly has a more liberal voting record than Cinema, uh, and he's much more willing to go along with Schumer than others are, and he's quieter, and he's an absolute. Yes. The part that a lot of people don't realize, he has been a money print fundraiser. Yes, wise. he's one of the highest fundraising politicians of all the races this cycle. Yes, and he does it mostly with small donors. So, everybody is watching that race. So it's. If Kelly doesn't win, then Cinema can say, see, I'm the only kind of Democrat who can pull it off. <clears throat> if Kelly wins, then Democrat then progressives can say, well, we don't need a Bernie Sanders type Democrat, but we do need a like an actual Democrat who will go along with the caucus. So everybody is gonna be Masters kind of threw a wrench into it because now he's down eight points behind Kelly. <clears throat> We'll see what happens. Everybody starts paying attention in September, as you know. And uh, who knows how much money Peter Thiel is going to uh, throw into that race. Because for those who don't know, Blake Masters is Peter Thiel's uh, kind of protege, his, his Padawan. And uh, and he's going to probably throw ungodly amounts of money into, into Arizona. So everybody, so Cinema's future really hinges on this Senate race. 
Yeah, that's good analysis. I don't think he's got eight points worth of money, but we'll see what happens out there. No. Since you brought it up, let's let's just talk about it real quick, though. Um, you talk to these people, you interview them. That's why I like to have you on. We can cut through the noise. They know how the Senate races are going more than anybody else. It sure does feel to me like, especially with the candidates that are winning, you talked about Masters. We got Oz. J.D. Vance is now in trouble in Ohio, it looks like. Um, Raphael Warnock, you just mentioned, he was going to be a tough out anyway because people didn't get the real narrative. The Trump stuff overshone how personal and ugly that race got in that uh, Georgia runoff, and it's too soon after that. I think he's going to win that one. It sure looks like the Democrats might either hold the split – I'm I'm seeing a pretty easy path for them to get to 51 or 52 here. Is that the mood, not just from the Democrats, is the Republican senators, is that the mood of everybody in the Senate? What are they saying that, as they go home? That seems to be the thing. Mitch McConnell said something very interesting over the weekend on Friday, I should say, or Thursday. He said, I don't think we're, he says there's a good chance that the Senate holds Democrat and the House flips. And for those who don't know, McConnell doesn't say anything more than he feels he needs to say. Um, um no, uh, people paid attention when he said this, too, because there was a lot of blowback because the uh, I think it was Rick Scott's people, not him personally, yes. but his team. Of course, he's head of the, the Republican Senate um, campaign fund. And remember, they got real life heat because of that stupid propaganda stuff he put back back in the spring. Yes. Rick Scott's people got out on social media quick because they felt that was McConnell throwing him under the bus for what's yes. coming. So this is a re- this is a something, man. This is a real thing. When McConnell came out and said this, he sees something coming here, doesn't he? He does, and McConnell basically recognizes. <clears throat> excuse me, McConnell is probably regretting not convicting Trump at this point, because if he did can vote to convict Trump, and then of course a bunch of other senators would have joined him. That would mean he's no longer anybody's problem. And then they could endorse different candidates to impact different candidates in the primaries. Trump basically endorsed all these candidates in the Senate races. And now it's a problem. And now Rick Scott is treating the NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, as his little fiefdom. And now there and now McConnell is having to, you know, triage some races. They're cutting off funding in some races. The Senate Leadership Fund, which is McConnell's, you know, personal piggy bank, is pouring in $28 million into Ohio. Uh, they're going to have to start, and they're, they're going to have to be really smart about which states they're going to spend money in and which states they're going to have to cut their losses in. And they're going to have to say this isn't worth spending money in. McConnell has to spend money in Ohio because it's so Republican. He can maybe pull out, if, if he sees Oz isn't going to win, or if he sees that Blake Masters isn't going to win, he can maybe afford to pull out. But he's got to probably spend money in North Carolina. He's got to spend money in Georgia, even though he may not want, even though he may not want to save Herschel Walker. That was what surprised me was when Thune and McConnell not just you know stayed out of their race, but endorsed Herschel Walker back in like December. Um, that was the, that was the real sign that they were kind of helpless. And now they're kind of, and so, so, so the vibe now with a lot of Republican senators is code red. We're in trouble. There was that big story in the Washington post this weekend about like, basically a lot of Republican donors are like, where is our money? <laughs> you know? Well, and then when they start leaking stuff, like, you know, yes. when they leak stuff like Oz isn't spending his own money, Yes, that's a that's a political attack. They're telling the donor base like, hey, we're not giving money because he's not giving money that that's signaling. That's not accidental stuff. No, it isn't like because the whole appeal of someone like Dr. Oz is that he'll spend his own money. That's the whole appeal of like really rich guys is that they'll spend their own money. That was the appeal of Trump. That was the appeal of uh, of Rick Scott when he ran into Senate in Florida is McConnell wouldn't need to spend spend a lot of money in Florida. and now that was the appeal when Mitt Romney ran for Senate in, in Utah. Now, now they're like, they're telling donors, don't spend your money because Oz isn't holding up his end of the bargain. That's a clear sign that they're that Republicans are getting ready to abandon Pennsylvania. 
And uh, they're probably going to lose the state house in Pennsylvania also because yes. Mastriano is just a monster. Let's take a quick break. We got long, but this is such good stuff. That's why we have him on, Eric Garcia. Great reporter, great insight. He was in the room, so we're going to cut through the noise, get to what actually happened in the Senate. We're going to talk about some other stuff, including his great book here in just a minute. Eric Garcia continues with us on Hertel right after this. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Welcome back to Hertel. We're talking to our good friend, Eric Garcia. He's a congressional uh, Hill reporter. He's the whisperer for folks like Joe Manchin who brush him off and say no comment, but he does it very professionally and we appreciate him greatly. Uh, we're talking about these Senate races a little bit because um, let's be honest, they're kind of the marquee thing. We know the House, even if even if it gets ugly, the House is still going to flip. Now, if it flips 10 seats or 30 seats, that's a big, big difference. Yes. But a lot of that will depend on these Senate races. That's what we're talking about. We were just talking about Pennsylvania. Um, what does it tell us? Because again, we were just talking about these things are signals. McConnell is not a stupid guy. He's very smart. He's very calculated. When he sees Oz win, when he sees Masters win in Arizona, when he sees J.D. Vance is (laughs) spending tons of money and getting no campaign bounce, um, which, you know, Vance may still win anyway, just because it's Ohio, but he's not, you know, lighting the world on fire. When he sees George, and you mentioned the Herschel Walker thing, I think part of that was he just didn't want any dissension in the ranks because they still have, um, they got embarrassed in the Georgia runoff. So I think that was probably more than anything there. He was just like, let's just get it over with, push on and not have that happen. He's got to be looking at this. Is is this his last run? Is he going to stick out at a a time in the minority? I know he's he's still going to be there for a while, but do you think this is the end of Mitch McConnell's Senate Majority Leader? This is probably the end of Senate of McConnell's. I think regardless, <clears throat> whether they win or they don't, he'll he'll still be be minority leader because there's a minority leader even if they're even after this election. But I think the Senate Senate Republicans at least are definitely thinking about a time after McConnell. That's why you're starting to see, the, as they call them, the three Johns, John Cornyn, John Thune, and John Barrasso starting to kind of jockey for, um, for you know, you know, different spots. You're seeing, other, you're, see, you're seeing others like Tom Tillis, who we've talked about, start to try to secure their role as deal makers. There are definitely signs that Senate Republicans, Tom Cotton is also somebody who's, who's starting to angle, uh, angle for a post-McConnell, and he's, he's definitely seeing himself as a foot soldier. For McConnell and kind of, um, there are definitely signs that Senate Republicans see it need to need to prepare for a post McConnell future. And the interesting thing about it, I've, I've said this about McConnell and Nancy Pelosi, and people think of them as polar opposites, but they're more similar than people realize. Um, McConnell doesn't have, I guess you could say a clear-cut protege. He has a lot of foot soldiers and he has a lot of, you know, loyal men, but he doesn't have, like, somebody who, this is my guy after I'm, after I'm gone. Pelosi, it's the same deal. There's nobody, there's no designated survivor when she leaves. And I think the Senate and Republicans are seeing this could be bad, but nobody's going to vote against McConnell, uh, you know, or oppose him for minority leader. But what happens afterward, it's very much an après-moi-le-déluge kind of scenario. Yeah, and he's – this is one of those things where he'll probably just pick his spot now when he wants to step off, uh, which he's probably earned the right to do. We've been talking about the Senate. Let's talk about the House since you brought up Nancy Pelosi. This is clearly going to be her last run as Speaker. I know Hakeem Jeffries has kind of be kind of de facto doing a lot of her stuff for her. He's even doing a lot of the pressers now. Yes. Um, 
they're not going to win. They're going to lose the house. Yes. But if it's 10 to 15 seats, as opposed to the 30 or 40 we were looking at before, that's a workable group. Uh, who's taking the lead on that? Is Nancy going to be an engaged minority leader? Is it going to be Jeffries? Is somebody else going to rise up in the leadership in the Democratic Party? Because they're going to be in a position now where any look, anything in the House that's around 20 votes, you've got you've got workable margins there. Yes. Yes. So and people that's something people don't realize is it's different than the Senate where one person can hold the thing up. You get within 20 votes of people. You're you've got blocks. Yeah. Talk about the leadership that what this is going to look like if the Republicans only have maybe a thinner majority than folks maybe thought three or four months ago. Yeah, I, I think that I think that even McConnell is not. I mean, uh, McCarthy is not. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, House Minority Leader, is is not even expecting is, is expecting a much thinner uh, thinner margin. Um, I think at this point, as you said, Hakeem Jeffries is definitely angling for that spot. Um, on top of that, I think that you're going to see some people on ways and means. Some people like Catherine Clark might also play a role. Uh, she might. She uh, she's the deputy speaker. <clears throat> McCall, uh, Pelosi and Hoyer are probably going to be are going to fight to the death, and they're never going to, you know, that's one re- one's never going to retire until the next one does, um, because they go back to their days in Maryland from before Pelosi moved to California. So, that, so there is really going to be a um, so 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 at this point, it's really a matter of will Pelosi. She, she now she's running for re-election, which surprised a lot of people, but there is very much a feeling of. Will she quietly step away? Will she resign afterward? Or will she be a minority leader? I don't know. There could be, you know, I could see her stepping away after this, or I could see her saying, this is my last go around as minority leader. Then I'll retire afterward after 2024. She could go either way. And I think that there isn't, as there aren't, <clears throat> there aren't as many hard feelings with Pelosi as there was in 2016 when a lot of people tried to challenge her. Because there's this feeling of, you know what? She kept us together. She kept us together when Republicans tried to repeal Obamacare. She kept us together during Trump's impeachment. She kept us together during the infrastructure bill. She kept us together on a lot of stuff. Um, you know, people may get annoyed with her, but it's kind of like mother knows best kind of. So Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the Republican side. How tenuous is Kevin McCarthy? He's not well-respected. He does not hold his caucus together very well. There's a lot of people that ostensibly are his allies that don't like him either. If they have a thin majority, this thing might get really, really ugly in, in his office in a big hurry, won't it? He could very easily go the route of John Boehner, which is to say that if he has a smaller majority than he expected, then the House Freedom Caucus types could very much be a problem for him. If, for example, he has to come up with a deal with Joe, you know, if Speaker McCarthy has to negotiate a deal with Joe Biden to keep the government open, um, you could see the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gates and the Bo Hines of the world, uh, you know, light into him and, and basically force him out. It's not going to be a fun time for him. He definitely has people who are loyal to him. He definitely has people who like him. But liking people is not the same as gaining their respect. Many people don't like Mitch McConnell, but a lot of people respect and fear him. Um, That doesn't necessarily exist with McCarthy. He doesn't have, I guess you could say, the bravado or the, 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 the kind of command that John Boehner did over the conference. And he certainly doesn't have, I guess you could say, the intellect that Paul Ryan does. So he's kind of just the thing that I've noticed about McCarthy is he's kind of just got, you, you know, the, the old saying, he's a turtle on a fence post. You don't know how he got there, but he didn't get there on his own. Of course, um, you you brought up Paul Ryan. 
the GOP went hat in hand begging him to take over to keep Kevin yes. McCarthy from becoming speaker the first time yes. around. So there's a lot of back history there. Let's talk about the other steps of leadership right now. Uh, Steve Scalise is there. He's got a lot of um, cachet with the party. He's yes. he's almost in that Hoyer role where he doesn't seem to really want to be number one, but he's entrenched in number two, and I don't think he's going to go anywhere. So anybody that wants to go up is going to have to have him as the ally. I think the interesting one here is the number three, uh, Elsie Stefanik. She did not sell her soul to be the conference chair. That's not why she completely changed herself. She's ambitious. She wants more. There's a lot of talk about what her next move is going to be, either in leadership or in the party. What are you hearing from people about her? Because she's kind of the one to watch here, isn't she? So the real thing is whether she runs to become whip. Um. Because if because if McCarthy becomes speaker, then Scalise would be majority yeah. leader. Do do the nomenclature for folks that forget their civics class. What the whips do because they're very 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 important members when the it comes, whip, especially a close Congress. The whip is important because the whip is the person who keeps everybody in the conference in line. They are the person who sit. They usually put out a memo saying, you know, this is how to vote. This is how you vote. They're the ones who they're the ones who make they're, they're the ones who make the phone calls all the time and make sure that everybody is kind of happy. They kind it's, it's a lot of smoothing out and soothing over egos. Uh, it, it's it, it, it's grunt work, but what it does is by virtue of that, you if you do it right, you gain a lot of goodwill, and you gain a lot of cachet to one day become speaker of the house. Um, I think three out of the last, I think four out of the last five speakers, which I think Pelosi was a whip, uh, McCarthy was a whip, Boehner and Ryan weren't, uh, Denny Haster. Yeah. Although he's not going to be speaker at any time, but he was for a long time. Yes. Um, I think she thinks she's going to be that person in the future. Yes. But is she? The question is whether Emmer challenges her because Emmer is basically saying hold your vote right now and Tom Emmer so for those who don't know Tom Emmer is the chair of the National Republicans Congressional Committee so he's in charge of electing all these House Republicans so he has a case to make that hey I got all these Republicans elected I should deserve something and I should say there's a long-standing beef between Stefanik and Emmer because Stefanik wanted more women candidates nominated uh, to be nominated and she wanted the committee to back them and Emmer said we're not in the business of doing that then what happened was um a lot of women did win house races in 2020 and Emmer was like hey this kind of works let's do this so there's there, there's a long-standing feud between those two and that's going to be the one to watch the other part of this, of course, is the second we're done with this midterm, the, the 2024 presidential race really yes. starts kicking up. I think the problem that the Republican Party is going to have with a thin majority, let's just say it's a thin majority, even if it, look, 20 seats is a thin majority. Let's just it be throwing up adults here. Let's say they get 20 seats just to kind of take the medium number, right? If they get 30, then this will change a little bit. They're going to have to try to legislate in the midst of a really tough presidential campaign. We already know that Trump is going to run in some form or fashion. Yes. This is where I question McCarthy not having his Congress and even Stefanik, if she becomes the whip or has what, what are you going to do with the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the worlds and the Matt Gates of the worlds that are so entrenched in the Trump, they're going to be all Trump all the time as part of your caucus. And when you got a thin majority, man, I just, I'm just talking mechanically and politically. I don't know how they function in that environment for the next 18 months after this midterm. When mom says no, dad, call dad and ask for his permission. That's what uh, this is going to be. I mean, literally, that's what it's going to be. I don't see how McCarthy has any authority, any leverage. He He's going to get kicked in the head every time he goes against Trump. If he goes along with Trump, he's going to be called a, you know, a simp for Trump, which he is fairly. Yes. You cannot be the Speaker of the House of the United States Congress in that position it would be impossible for anybody for somebody that's already compromised and not cared about and not respected like mccarthy i i think this could get really really ugly yeah because it, the moment that marjorie taylor green or bo Hines or matt gates or you know even someone like a jim banks uh or, or jim jordan even gets mad they can call trump or scott perry and they can or they can go on sebastian gorka's radio show or whatever and Trump will then put out a statement on Truth Social 
and or he'll say something on television on Newsmax or Fox News or what or what have you, or he'll say something at a rally, and immediately it'll undercut and undermine McCarthy. It would not. It's not an enviable position because. <clears throat> When Boehner and when uh, when Boehner was in was was speaker, and even when Paul Ryan was for the first two years when he was when he was uh, speaker when Obama was president, um, they didn't have to necessarily answer for everything Trump did, because they were the de facto leader of the party by that time. Now with Trump campaigning, they're going to have to they're going to have to you know Trump can always say, you know, don't do this, even if it means hey we need to do a CR to. Uh, you know, prevent the government from shutting down, or we might need to raise the debt ceiling, or we might need to pass an omnibus bill. They're going to have to contend with the fact that Big Daddy is not going to, you know, is is is, is going to let the kids run roughshod. So, but they they may not be able to put it together. Is my point? Speak Agreed. on this because you're on the floor. You talk to these people. You're the there's a there's a process and a mechanism to how Congress works beyond the politics of just yes. hey, we got to get the votes done. This has to get done. This has to get done. That calculus does not function if you don't have a Speaker of the House that can just finally put his foot down and say, no, you're going to vote for this because the country's going to stop moving if you don't. Some, right. Like it, Pelosi's had to do it. Bonner had to do it. You pick any Speaker. That, Tip O'Neill did it a bunch under Reagan, even though they had the Democrat. People forget that Reagan had a Democratic majority to deal with. Yeah. That's just part of the adulting. <laughs> I don't think that happens in the next two years with a Republican slim minority. You can, maybe I'm wrong. I hope I am for the good of the country. I think this could be really, really bad, chaotic stuff. Am I wrong? McCarthy is going to have to rely on a lot of Democratic votes to vote along with him, basically. Which is going to get him murdered. That's my whole yeah, point. No, like, he's, gonna, he's, going, he's screwed either which way here. Yeah? Right. Because either his caucus revolts against him and they shut down the government, or he go, has to go in hat in hand to Pelosi or Hakeem Jeffries or whoever is leading the conference and saying, look, I got about 30 Republicans who will join you on this. Can you bail me out? Uh, and then, of course, Pelosi or whoever's leading the conference, the Democrats at the time, can extract a lot out of him. Uh, it's not going to be it's not going to be pretty for him. And he's going to be, you, you know, he's going to be, uh, you know, a stool pigeon the, mo the moment he the moment he takes that oath. Another thing that I've been opining on, we'll get your opinion, see if you agree with me or not. I think a split Congress really, really bails Biden out because now he can just run against a Republican Congress. It'll get yes. his improvement up a little bit. It'll change the calculation for his reelection campaign. Um, is that the feeling of the members of Congress as well? Because they care about the presidency. They care about the politics of it, especially this election and the next election, which is what Democrats are really eyeballing. Yes. Is that the feeling that they have as well as like, hey, th this split Congress is going to be good for us politically? That isn't something I've heard yet, but I can see that it's some. But one thing that I do see, you do see what you're seeing Democrats do is you're seeing them try to find something to run against right now. So you saw that when they tried to make Rick Scott the boogeyman with um, his whole thing about even poor people paying taxes. You saw that. You see that now with uh, <laughs> with them running against Ron Johnson talking about, you know, cutting Social Security. This gives them something to run against. If they're in the majority, if Republicans are in the majority in the House, they can say, we want to do X, but Republicans aren't letting us. Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump and all of them are, are actively stalling and making it hard to govern, making it impossible to govern. And then what they could say is, and then contrast that with this last spate of legislation, they could say, hey, remember what happened when we had a trifecta? It's going to be interesting to watch. We're going to keep talking to you about it. Uh, Eric Garcia, we're going to take a quick break. We come back. We're going to shift gears. Uh, we're going to talk about his passion project, uh, Autism and Disabilities. He's got a great book about it. A lot of headlines. I want to run by him while we have him on the phone anyway. More with our friend Eric Garcia on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Our buddy Eric Garcia wrote a book on autism so good. It is Mrs. Donaldson approved. That'd be my mother, longtime special education teacher. Um, I actually want to start right there and talking a little bit about autism, though, because there's part of this conversation I think the general public misses out on. And I know it because my mom was a special education teacher. You have a whole chapter in your book um, kind of dealing with how we develop to where we are now with things like yes. special education. People don't realize how new 
spec like this is within my mother's lifetime late 60s yes. they've got the first run of federally trained student teachers yes when we're talking about funding and stuff we're only two generations into this thing so when we see headlines about special education and autism and things like that this isn't something that's ancient history this is very much new science new educational theory and I think people are kind of taking for granted that, oh, well, this has just always been this way. And it hasn't. And I think when we discuss and I'm going to ask you in a minute about the pop culture stuff and the TV shows and the depictions. I think that's part of this that gets missed is the respect for these folks is really, really new. And therefore, it's still kind of fragile. Is that a fair way to put it? Fragile is probably the best word I can use to describe it. So you talk about you talk you talked about your mom being a special education teacher. The Education for Handicapped Children Act passed in I think 1974, 75. President Gerald Ford signed it, and Ford actually signed it, but he he had some objections. He said the federal government's never going to live up to its full obligations, and he was kind of right when he said that. The uh, the and then on top of that the end after that it was reauthorized as what most parents know now which is the individual the individuals with disabilities education act which was in 1990 that was the year i was born that was in october of 1990 so this is only 31 years going on 32 years uh this is you know there are adults in the workforce who are younger than this um that means that a lot of this is still very fragile. A lot of this still, a lot of people are catching up to it. A lot of this, there still isn't that much cultural cachet or cultural knowledge about it. And on top of that, what you have to remember is, so as I say all the time, there was in 1990, that was just when the, um, when autism was included in as a disability education in that and the IDEA authorization, it was and then it, what there was a developmental disabilities act. I forget what exactly what it was called in 1977 or 1976 that uh, Ruth Christ Sullivan, a great West Virginian was, uh, was, uh, you, you know, was involved in lobbying for, and that included autism as a, as a disability with covered services. So this, as you said, when we talk about fragile, the reason it's so fragile is because it's so new. Autism didn't get a separate diagnosis until not separate from schizophrenia until 1980. We, you know, it was interesting when I was going back and I was reading a lot of magazine articles about autism when I was writing the book. Uh, it was funny to see how interchangeably the words autism and childhood schizophrenia were used. Uh, it, that, that was just what it was seen as. So to your point about fragile, this is still relatively new, all things considered. You were tweeting about it, and the reason I bring this up is because people are getting more open about talking about it for good, bad, and indifferent, but we'll talk yes. about that in just a second. We're starting to get politicians being open about this. We're getting sports yes. figures that are open about this. We're getting stars to be more open about this. We just talked mental health with our friend, Dr. Katie Gordon, and she talked about this as like, yeah, people kind of blow it off, but this is important stuff when people just start openly talking about it. Now that we're getting them into the political realm, uh, and we can talk about uh, New York 10 and things like this. How do we need to approach it as a society and as people that comment on it? Because one of the things we bash about is the portrayals in media and in movies. Politicians are portraying it, too. And I don't mean that in a performative manner. I just mean they're, they're avatars and standard bearers for this stuff. Yes. How should we be approaching and covering them? Should we treat it any different? Should we treat it different? Because as you're a journalist, first and foremost, you know, there's not a style book guide to this stuff. We're writing yes. it as we go. So how do we deal with it? There is, you're right. There isn't a. There are some style book guys, so like the ASU's National Disability uh, Center on Disability Journalism has a pretty good style book. But even then, there's still some things like, you know, how do we? The perfect example that I that I that I often use is, do you use person person with autism or autistic person, uh, person first versus identity first language, um, and the the answer is, you know, you ask. Um, you ask people what they what they say what they what they prefer. Uh, that that's very important. But I, but I think also it's one of those things where, um, you know, the the AP style book had a real uh, had a real row because there was a big question of how do you, you know they said you know use person first language. Well, that works for people with Down syndrome and that works for people with cerebral palsy and people with intellectual disabilities. But other people, you know, other people with groups of disability, like autistic people, blind people, deaf people, they 
some of them prefer, you know, identity first language. So I think it's real. I think it's, I think, as you said, this is really difficult. And I think that, uh, to, to, I think it's difficult to shoehorn it into the older prescribed ideas of what journal about how to write these things. And I think it, it, a lot of it depends on what people themselves say. One of the things that I was really adamant about when I was writing my book was asking, how do you want to be, how do you want to be referred? Do you want to be referred to as a person with autism? Do you want to be referred to as an autistic person? Uh, and, and that, and that's going to, that's going to be something that I think journalists are going to have to, uh, adapt to. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in the same way. I think so, you know, in, um, in New York 10, for example, so today there's going to be a primary, uh, with Yuli New who's running to, if she wins her primary, she'd be the likely the first openly autistic member of Congress. And one of the things that I think that's interesting is that she said, you know, you know, for the longest time we've talked about, you know, I think a lot of news outlets say, oh, people don't let their disability define them. Whereas she said, you know, it's very much shaped how she is. So that's a question about how do we use that language and how do we say, like, uh, you know, if people's disability defines them, we should say, like, I think that leads to the question without being rude. And that's a whole other thing. It's like, how does being a person with a disability shape you? How does it inform you? How does it inform you as a policymaker? You know, it's about, you know, and obviously this is all dependent on how comfortable they are talking about it. So this is a real, these are going to be some real questions that I, that I don't have a real clear answer to, but I'm still learning and I'm trying to figure it out as well. But that's the problem, isn't it? Because every case of autism or every case of Down syndrome or every case of whatever, pick your developmental disability sort of thing or uh, whatever somebody's struggling with, they're all different. And they yes. affect everybody a little bit differently. This isn't like um, some other things where you can just take a broad brush. So do we need the good congressman TV series to go with the good lawyer and the good doctor? That's the question <laughs> now, because that's because, you know, let's be honest. Our politicians are TV characters now. Yes, they are. They are. So I'm, I'm being a little facetious there, but that's probably what somebody's going to come up with next. It's like, oh, well, we need to have the good president or the good. And I'm not knocking it because I actually like the good doctor. I think it's a good show. Yeah. But I'm not sure that that's going to be a scalable thing where we need to do it four, five, six times. You were tweeting about this. I'll ask you because you're in that community. I'm not. How does it land with you with portrayals like that? Because I, I understand it's artistic, so it's subjective. Yeah, yeah. Is it in line of, oh, they're covering this good or they're exploiting it? That's a fine line. Where does it fall? It is a you? very fine line. I think the, the thing that I've always said is that, so as far as I could tell when I was writing the book, I tried to see if they had any autistic advisors. They do have some people with disabilities as advisors, but not specifically autistic. I've seen, so you know, I, I've watched a few episodes of it. I haven't like, you know, it's not the, you know, it gets some things right. It gets some things wrong, I think. But I think more than anything, what I what I would like to see is <clears throat> more than just doing spinoffs of these shows. I think what I'd like to see is more stuff, more, more uh, material created by autistic creators or autistic screenwriters. I do know of some people in Los Angeles who do work in the, who do work in the industry and they really try hard to get their, um, their material in front of an executive or in front of, uh, in, in front of, you know, Netflix or HBO max or whatever. And then, you know, forget the fact that a lot of these streaming services are cutting, uh, right now. Uh, that's a whole other issue. But I think that one of the things that's difficult is creating an incentive for, uh, for, the entertainment industry to pick these things up and pick them up when they're created by people with disabilities one of the or when they're even in front of the camera i think you know we saw this a little bit with coda when it won the academy award for best picture that was good you know uh and from what i understand people i know people in the deaf community have mixed opinions about it but they were happy that it got funding it got the promotion from apple it got the promotion it got like it had a whole pr campaign what it's going to need, what what this will need, what I think, it's not just about picking up these shows. It's about will networks or will, you know, production companies, will they put the full force of their, you know, PR and promotion machine into promoting this and saying that this is content worth watching? What do you do with a reality show like Love on the Spectrum? Because I know the the family, household out on the other day and I was, I was just watching, I was walking back and forth because I have an open house. If this is just my opinion, I'm not knocking anybody involved. It just feels intrusive to me. It, stuff yeah. like that. 
because it's interpersonal relationships. I get it. It's like, oh, they can have love. Like, look, I'm all for it. Again, my mom was a special ed teacher. I grew up surrounded by kids with what we now call autism. They didn't know that back in the 80s yeah. so much. Uh, kids with Down syndrome. And you got to understand how special education worked back then. My mom would have these kids in high school level for seven, eight, nine years usually. So yes. you really developed a relationship yes. with the, you know, the Shane Cogers of the world who I can still hear his voice to this day, who's still alive, by the way, doing well. It feels invasive to me because I grew up in around those kinds of folks and I knew them and they were my friends and I, you know, I love them and I care about them. That, that kind of stuff feels intrusive to me. I understand you want to portray them as just, Hey, they're, they're doing these normal it things. Feels like very Discovery Yeah. It, it's, it's, it, that one bothers me. How does it hit you? Yes, yeah, so I'm not watched, singling it out. I'm just saying. I, mean, I'm not, I don't want to like single it out. I don't want to, you know. So I watched the Australian version. I still need to watch the American version. That's what they had uh, on last night. The Aussie. So, one. the oh uh, yeah, the Aussie one. From what I understand, the American one is is better. Uh, from you know, you know, from what people I know and pe autistic people who I know have watched and say that one, the American version is better. Um, the Aussie one felt really. I watched like five episodes of it, and it came out when out toward the end of me writing my book. And it felt really, I, I got the same feeling. You did. It, it felt real. I got really clammy watching it. It felt really like so, some of the, some of the couples are, and some of the people in that show are great. I don't want to knock them, you know, good for them. And, and, and I was really happy for them. Others, it just felt really like, I felt like, as, as you said, I felt like I was invading their privacy almost. And I was almost like, because it's one thing to give your consent because, you know, obviously all these people have to give their consent. But I don't know how I feel about like you can't once you give once you sign that waiver. The the production companies get licensed to do whatever they to clip and to, to clip and choose whatever they want, and so just giving a license of consent isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily mean that it's all honky dory. And I and there there were parts of it that I really just felt like should I be watching this. Is it appropriate? And not like it's explicit or anything like that, but it's just like it felt like there was some stuff that I wouldn't like about my life being broadcast. I don't know if I feel comfortable with, with, with that. That's just me. That's my argument against reality TV in general, by the way. So it, it, it's not me being inconsistent just because yes. it's folks with on the autism spectrum. It's like, look, you know my, you know my rule on Twitter about reality TV. Uh, those folks signed a contract, so they signed up for it. But that's part of what bothers me here. Is yes. When you start getting into these communities and I don't want to denigrate anybody, I really don't. So no, I, I get what you're saying. like, I, I'm not sure we should really be pushing that kind of contracts on folks in that community in the first place, just as a general rule. But that's just me. That is so I'll say this. When I was writing my book, um, I went to Marshall University in, in West Virginia and there were college students. And one of the things that I did, as I said, I'm going to have you sign a waiver. Say you're okay with this. The thing that I the thing that I felt was that I felt that what I did is I I was very upfront with them. I said I'm autistic, I, and I want to make sure that I get this right. So if I have any questions, I'll reach out to you because I didn't want to do that. And there were there was and there was another one another time there was another person who I interviewed not at Marshall but somewhere else. Uh, really important story that I really wanted to include in the book. But there was just something about the way, about the stuff that he told me about his personal life. And I just felt really, really like I made this phone call literally like days before I turned in the manuscript. And I said, I want to make sure you're okay with this because you have to live with this. I don't. And then he said, no, can you please take it out? And it sucked because I thought that his stuff was really important. But at the end of the day, he has to live with it. I don't. And I think that the difference is the difference is who's behind the camera. If you have people who've been through similar experiences, or if you have autistic people who are advising or producing or things like that, that might lead to more sensitivity and recognition about like what's appropriate and what's not appropriate to show. And I think that that is where I feel kind of uncomfortable is that because if you don't have that cultural knowledge, then you might not know what's appropriate to include and what's not appropriate to. That's just my. That's just me. That's just me. It's one guy's opinion. I'm not saying you, you know. I'm not saying that my word is gospel.
I, th- I think it's a tough subject. One more thing on this autism stuff, because I thought we were done with this, but apparently not. They're going to keep going through it. For folks that don't know, because I'm old enough to remember when we did this in the early 2000s, the late 90s, especially in the early 2000s, right when the Internet came along, of course, that's when this yes. mess started. We've got to untangle autism from this vaccine mess. Yes. We've just got to because we're going to we're going to get people killed with this. Nonsense. Gonna, I, I, I usually try to be nonsense, but I've just had it with this. I, I, I've lost my patience now that we're seeing polio in New York. We uh, One of the greatest achievements in human history, literally one yes. of the greatest achievements in human history was defeating polio. Coming yes. up with the vaccine. And it was a mess. They accidentally put the live virus in. Eisenhower had to go on TV, one of the first TV addresses, and be like, no, the vaccine's safe. People don't understand what an achievement it was. We defeated polio. It was gone. And yes. now it's back out of our own ignorance. And we're using autism as an excuse to do it. Uh, I have no patience for this. You I speak am... on it. <laughs> You, if, how do you how do you think I feel? Um, I am just so livid because this, this, this is this, this is the real. Okay, now you got me on my soapbox. This is the reason why I'm so why it gets me so upset is because it treats autism as a problem and it treats autistic people as a problem to be fixed. And then what it does is it puts the blame on parents. Because what it says is it's your fault your child is autistic because you got got your kid the shots. They put, then place the blame on the doctors. And we spend all this time blaming everybody for the kid being autistic when that does nothing to help autistic people in school. That does nothing. We're not spending – we still do not have enough funding for home care. The, the, there was this great series of articles, I'm sure you saw me tweeting about it, in the Houston Chronicle about the wait lists in Texas for uh, autistic parent, for, for autistic kids waiting to get their services through Medicaid. It does nothing uh, to ameliorate the fact that people on SSI have to live in poverty. It does – we, by focusing on this – we're getting people killed because we're not focusing on polio and we are not actually focusing on autistic people's lives. And then we are, <clears throat> this is just, this is just, a, again, now you got me all hopped up. Um, it makes me mad because I think about this one kid I interviewed and now they're an adult, so I don't want to call them a kid, but they're, you know, uh, their name's Aaron Starr. Their mom uh, believed the horse hockey about vaccines and autism. And their mom blamed themselves. Right. And instead of spending time focusing on how to help their kid live a fulfilling life, helping them make sure that they that they graduate from college and live a good life, all that, we spent all they spent all this time blaming themselves. It is just the most infuriating thing. And I, I I'm, you know, I it makes lasers shoot out of my eyes. So anyway, rant over. No, but that's why I think people need to hear the rant. Because what happens is parents are susceptible. Parenting yes. advice is a multi-billion dollar industry in America. It is. You, you've worked in media for a while now. They openly talk like, what are we going to do with the mom demographic? That's a thing yes. in media. It's absolutely yes. a thing. And to use it exploitively towards a group of people who have something that they didn't ask for, it's something that nature put in them. Yes. And to treat it like it's this disease to cure instead of something that we should be helping these people live with and become their best. I started thinking about you, you hit on one of my pet peeves right there. You talked about, you know, the SSI payments, you know, on one hand, we take away things like the sheltered workshop and giving them job skills. And on the other hand, we tell them like, Oh, you can't work because you won't have your benefits anymore. If you make money, this kind of double speak stuff, it all starts going together. It's like, Oh, well you, this vaccine causes autism. Well, autism is this, that, and the other. Oh, you can't work. We'll put you on government benefits, but we're not going to give you enough benefit. There's a lot of just double speak when it comes to autism and disabilities in general in America. Yes, we've got to find some way to cut through the double speak, and some of it's because government bureaucracy that's built into the system. Yeah, I get yeah, that. yeah, exactly. But at some point, and that's why I loved your book so much. You just go talk to the people. You skip all the double speak. Yeah, and that's really the core of your. And I will pitch your book because it's that good, not just because you're Thank a friend. You. That's the double speak that really hurts people that are trying to live with disabilities instead of giving them a hand up. You're giving them a hand up while you're holding them on the top of the head at the same time. And that's yeah. just infuriating. That is, yeah, it is. The, the thing that I say a lot of times is that we, is that I cannot imagine, you know, so like I grew up in the 1990s when there wasn't a, when in some ways it was, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times because like it was great. It was 
bad because there was, I, I, I feel for my mom in a lot of ways because there just wasn't a lot of information at the time. But on the other hand, I'm also kind of grateful that we didn't have the internet because that means that my mom wasn't uh, subjected to a lot of quackery. I think it's, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of term when I say that. And as a result, I think, so like, I don't envy any parent as soon as they get the, the autism diagnosis for their kid. I don't because they, because immediately, immediately they are subjected to a, to a deluge of misinformation and, uh, and the right information wrong. And, and it's hard. I don't blame them for like not knowing what the right stuff to do is. I mean, I think you saw, I don't know if you saw that, that stat news piece about like how a lot of private equity companies are getting involved in um, ABA. And like, that's another thing because, because now you have people are making money off something and there's an incentive to shoot, to pressure parents into doing that. So there is, so there is so much misinformation and it is, it is, it is endlessly frustrating because it doesn't actually address what they need. You know, they're, they're, you, you know, just, just last month I was at a conference with uh, a bunch of non-speaking autistic people and their stories were all the same which was for the longest time, they went through a bunch of different treatments, a lot of different, you know, quote unquote cures or a lot of different therapies. And it wasn't until they got to, you know, speech, speech communication or keypads or what, or what have you, that they decided that, you know, their lives overnight got better. And, but, but, you know, it shouldn't take going through all those hoops to finally have the, 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 the Paul going through the, the desert in Damascus moment. Know. Yeah. And it's it's amazing that the technology is running so far ahead of the policy. We talked about this when we did the long form podcast, that's one it. of the most listened ones we've ever had, by the way. Well done on that. But that's because people want good. Info they really do want the good information on this they stuff do. if you get it out there. But this is the thing is the technology has run so far ahead and especially autism stuff, both uh, policy wise and educational. We talked about it before. It really was organic and parent driven because they just didn't have anywhere else to go. Yes. I, our our country deserves the government it gets, but these folks deserve a much better government than they're getting. And I'll just kind of leave yeah. it at that to end the rant on it. Eric Garcia, this is fantastic stuff. I could talk to you all day. That's why we have you back more and more. You do great work, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow you. Pitch the book. We're going to link to it. I'm going to send some stuff out on the book. Oh, we are not broken. He's going to hold it up because he knows how to do a segment because he's a media professional. Look at that. Yeah. There you go. If you're watching on the YouTube. Go ahead, sir. Is, we're not broken. Change the autism conversation. It is now officially out on paperback. It has a new afterword about vaccines, stuff we were talking about, about the panic about it, how the how the autism vaccine panic gave rise to the coronavirus vaccine panic, uh, and so much more. It is uh, it is now available wherever you can get fine books. Uh, and, uh, and and I always love coming back here because you actually know what you're talking about. You actually and you actually you actually take the time to do the work. So I always love I always love coming on here. I appreciate that. You steer me some other folks too, which I really appreciate. Um, love talking to you, my friend. The book is important. Uh, maybe the sequel on vaccines might want to kick that idea around. That'll sell to somebody. <laughs> um, my friend, I appreciate you as a friend. I really appreciate the work you do. We'll do this again real, real soon, my friend. Eric Garcia, you're great, my friend. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, sir. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.